All right, good morning, everybody. This morning we'll be in Psalm 69. That's going to be our text. Had a wonderful conference down in St. Joe this week. Um, just an amazing time and uh, excellent teaching. So with that being said, they're all online. You're able to listen to those. Well, eventually, they're, they're starting to upload them um, from, the, from this weekend, and you'll be able to watch those at ccaheartland.com. And if you have Facebook, it's, on our, it's in our feed. You can just look there. Or just look it up, CCA Heartland, and it'll pop up, and you'll be able to listen to those teachings there. But um, wonderful time with with the guys that were flown out to help us and teach us and be a blessing, and they certainly they certainly delivered. It was wonderful. So we're so thankful for them. Things coming up this uh, uh, tonight um, is the teen night. It's a, uh, five to eight uh, from ages thirteen to seventeen. You're welcome to come on out for that um, for a hayride and a bonfire and. Uh, there'll be a dinner and so on, so and some teaching. So, uh, Life Chain, October second, two to three p.m. That's the first Sunday of every October. Always, you can always plan on it. Uh, we meet at the courthouse at one forty-five to pick out your sign, and then what we do is we stand silently in prayer uh, against abortion. And although the Supreme Court has uh, done what they should have done, the battle is really, really picking up even more now from state to state as California is beginning to. Um, advertise in our state to say, come to our state, we'll kill your baby for you, and we'll pay for it, and all. So there's still a battle. The battle rages, and so we encourage you to come out for that if you can. We represent usually about 50% of the people that show up for this. Unfortunately, many of the churches in town just don't see it as an issue, and they're wrong. So um, it's good to be out there if you can. So, uh, And then potluck, October 9th, a little happier note, <laughs> October 9th, and we're going to be having pulled pork, bring a side that'll kind of go with that if you want to. Cheesy potatoes always really go good with pulled pork. Just a suggestion. Just a suggestion. All right. Is there any, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Harvest party, October 31st, 4 to 9. It's our alternative to Halloween. We really don't want to celebrate evil or glorify uh, the demonic, and so we want to give the kids something else to do. Um, welcome to dress up. We just don't want to you know, participate in that stuff. So you know, use some discernment. We don't want to have evil costumes here, no blood, no gore, you know, none of that stuff. That's just That's all from the pit of hell, and we don't want to have anything to do with it. So... Um, bring cakes for the cakewalk. Kids love it. Absolutely love it. So that's coming up. Now it's done. Okay, now. Psalm 69. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, the opportunity to be fed by it. That's our desire. We, uh, we feed our physical bodies all the time, and, and, and when we're, hover, wherever we're hungry, we, we grab something to eat out of the fridge. This is our time to be fed spiritually, uh, as well as our quiet times throughout the week. And so, Lord, we pray as we have come together, as you've uh, commanded, to not forsake the assembling together of the brethren, as is the manner of some. We're here. Um, we are open to your teaching, Holy Spirit. We pray that you would make your word uh, alive and sharper than any two-edged sword. And we, we're, we're open to everything you have for us today. And we thank you for David's heart in this psalm. In Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 69 is, a, is a, a plea by David for help. Um, he knows what he's supposed to be doing. He understands his mission, is, what his calling is. Um, but it's a hard calling, you know. And all of us know what our job is as Christians, what our mission is, that we're to be light and salt to this world and that we're to, um, you know, burn brightly in a city set on a hill and, and all that. And yet there's adversity that comes along with that. It, it, paints a pretty big target on your back. And of course, David is dealing with that, especially as a king. 
especially as someone who uh, wants to humble himself before the Lord and be royalty at the same time. You know, um, his wife, Michael, didn't understand that when he would dance before the Lord in his ephod, which is what Jesus wore, by the way. But it wasn't the royal robes. And that offended that his wife, who thought he should be better than just the commoner who would wear an ephod, you know, a simple white garment that would, you know, be thrown over, you know, that's too humble, that's too low. And she's, she made fun of him when he came into the palace. And David, of course, responded, I'll be even more undignified than this. If it's before the Lord, if it's an act of worship before God, I'll be even more undignified than this. He didn't have a problem humbling himself before the God of all creation. Neither should we, of course. And we know that. But just like David felt that target on his back as he's trying to worship God with everything that he has, his own wife in his own house made fun of him for being humble, for showing himself to be less than, you know, and it offended her. Well, we'll have the same problems in our walk with Jesus. And that's what David writes about here in verse 1. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no standing. I have come into deep waters where the floods overflow me. I am weary with my crying. My throat is dry. My eyes fail while I wait for my God. Those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. They are mighty who would destroy me, being my enemies wrongfully. Though I have stolen nothing, I still must restore it. He's in a tough spot. I don't know if you've ever cried so hard to where your throat felt dry, like you've got nothing left before. That ache, you know, in the back of your throat after you've been crying for too much, for too long. That's where David is. He's, he's saying, I felt the waters being, you know, coming up in my life. I felt the persecution rising, but I'm, I'm at the point now where I'm treading. I can't stand anymore. And I feel like I'm going to drown. He's at, he's at a breaking point. So he begins to cry out to God. He, he'd been crying out to God before that, but he's in a, he's in a place right now where he's, he's actually not giving an ultimatum, but in a sense saying, God, you need to show up. I need you right now. And I understand that. What's happening to him is that the enemies have wrongfully come against him. He hasn't done anything wrong. Now, he'll elaborate on that as we go through this in the sense that he begins to say, I know that I'm a sinner. I know I've got problems. But what they're upset with me about is nothing more than jealousy. And like Michael, they don't like my humility. They don't like my brokenness before God. And so now I've got enemies. David had a lot of hair. He says, and I look around and I say, I think I've got more enemies and more hair on my head, you know. It's a lot. It's a lot. And so he cries out to God and he asks him for help. One of the things I learned at the conference, and you'll hear that a lot throughout this teaching because it's fresh in my mind, that you need to learn to understand you're going to be misunderstood. Understand you're going to be misunderstood, especially as a Christian, obviously. As you stand up for Jesus in this world, understand you'll be misunderstood. And David is completely misunderstood by those around him. His heart is not to hurt people. It's not to do damage to people. It's not to bring the kingdom down as far as Israel goes. It's to elevate God's kingdom in Israel that's supposed to be his people, God's people. But they misunderstood that as you're trying to tear us down. You're trying to break us down. No, I'm trying to build him up. You know? Um, in any kind of boot camp, no matter what branch of the military you go into, they eventually have to go through and you start off with a boot camp. 
That boot camp is designed to level the playing field. Everybody that comes in has a certain level. They're either rich or they're poor. They're either good looking or they're ugly. They're either in shape or they're not. And they all come in, they all flop off the bus, and they've all got a pecking order already immediately. The first thing they do is cut off all the hair. Hey, Goldilocks, no more hair. Hey, you scrubby guy, no more hair. And all of a sudden, you look around and everybody's doing this when they come out. You can't help it. You touch it for the first time. You're like, that's just scalp and bristle, you know? But you all look the same. That seems mean and demoralizing and dehumanizing. No, 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 no. It's leveling. It's leveling. And then for the next so many weeks, depending on which branch you're in, you get yelled at and screamed at and told you're worthless and nothing. But by the time you're done, you're graduating as, a, as an accomplishment, you see. Don't misunderstand those drill instructors. They're not there to kill you. They're not there to make you fail. They're trying to break down everything you came in with and try to build up what's important and what's necessary for the mission you're going to be called to. Make no mistake about it. When we come to God's word, that is what it's for. It may feel rough sometimes. It may feel harsh. It's like, oh, look, I mean, you could have said that better. Maybe. But it was said in love. That has to go. And this has to elevate. John, I've got to decrease that he might increase. It's just how it is. As a Christian, all these preconceived ideas and notions and my own personalities that come into Christianity, some of those are okay. That's the way God made you. That's usually our excuse. But some of those things are not okay. That's the way Satan's made you who made God made you. You know, He's perverted you in some ways, and that has to be changed. It isn't you the way God created you. It's Satan's version of you. And that has to be broken down and taken away. When David rebukes the nation of Israel or humbles himself before the Lord or encourages the worship of God appropriately in the nation of Israel, some are offended at that. That's not how we used to do it. What's wrong with my sacrifice? What's what's wrong with the way we've been doing it long before? Saul never said this stuff to us. Saul's not here. David, a man after God's own heart, is. And we're trying to get there in our worship. David knows what misunderstandings are about. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, verses 28 through 30, David has come from his dad's house, already anointed, but the brothers are in the battle against the Philistines with Saul. David is bringing cheese and bread up to his brothers, and he's supposed to give those to those brothers' leaders, commanders, so that they, you know, keep them in the rear. Keep them in the rear. I don't want my boys dead. Here's a little, not a bribe, but you know, maybe might keep my boys safe. Who knows? And also he's to bring whiz, or information or news back to dad about how the brothers are doing. And so he finds his brothers and what's going on. But in the, in the midst of this transference of cheese and bread and getting the news, he sees this Philistine, this Goliath guy, this mouthy, blasphemous man making fun of their God, the nation of Israel, making fun of the leaders and all the soldiers saying, it's just me out here. Anybody want to take me on over and over again for 30 days? He did that. And David says, why is this man still breathing? And we've talked about this before. Why is he still, why is he still talking? Here's his brothers, what they say. Now, Eliab, his oldest brother heard when he spoke to the men And Eliab's anger was aroused against David, and he said, Why do you come down here? And with whom you've left those few sheep in the wilderness? 
I know your pride and your insolence of heart, for you have come down to see the battle. First of all, he's embarrassed, Eliab is, that he's not doing what God's called him to do. And so he sees somebody else doing what God's called him to do, and it makes him mad. So he brings him down. Expect that. As you draw closer to Jesus Christ, as you lift up your hands in song, as you pray to God, there'll be someone in the back saying, look at that show. I know why you're here. You're just trying to be seen by people. You know. Oh, look at that. Look at this. Oh, what a... All they're feeling is guilt. Because they know that's the proper way to worship Jesus Christ. He's the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. We, we know everything about him. And yet we come to him sometimes with our worship like, eh, you know, it's just God, just another Sunday. No value there. But when someone who knows the value of God comes in and begins to worship with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength, like David, when Michael, his wife, made fun of him, dancing before the Lord in your ephod, what a, why are you so mad? Because you didn't think of it? Because you didn't do it? You know? Expect to be misunderstood. David answers this to his brother, what have I done now? Is there not a cause? Should this guy not be shut up? Should Goliath continue to talk like this? Are you saying that my anger and my righteous indignation and my desire to go out there and shut him up is wrong, Eliab? And this is what he does. Then he turned from him toward another and said the same thing. And these people answered him as the first ones did. Every single person. Here's the important part that David did. He just turned from him. And it didn't stop him from doing what he needed to do. You're doing this for show. You're doing it. I don't know what to say. Stay in your tents. Stay out of sight. Hide behind the rocks. Do whatever you do. I'm going to go serve my God. Be ready for that. Be prepared for that. And know to expect that. You're going to be misunderstood as you desire to worship God more and more. And it may even be in your own home. They may not understand. You're drawing a little too close to God. That's a little too holy. That's a little too religious for me. I mean, I wanted my husband saved, but not that saved. You know, now he's going to conferences. What's a conference? You know, I wanted him here to do my honey-do list on Saturday. But there he is, off worshiping God, and I'm here slaving away. Mm, careful, careful. Verse five. Oh God, this is where David humbles himself and still calls himself out on it. Oh God, you know my foolishness and my sins are not hidden from you. Let not those, or let, let not those who wait for you, O Lord of hosts, be ashamed because of me. Let not those who seek you be confounded because of me, O God of Israel. I don't want that. I know that I've got faults. I know that I've got problems. And the last thing I want is my faults and my problems to cause other people to stumble in their walk with you. Please keep me from that. That prayer of Jabez is a very good prayer. When read properly, that was Jabez's heart. If you don't know who that is, it's in 1 Chronicles 4.10. There were books written about it. You could get a, I think you could even get keychains at the time. It's a very popular thing that moved through the church, and it's wonderful. Of course, the popular part was to expand our tent pegs, and we'll read it here in a minute. The unpopular part was make sure that I don't do any harm. That's the most important part. This is the prayer. And Jabez called on the God of Israel saying, Oh, that you would bless me indeed and enlarge my territory, that your hand would be with me and that you would keep me from evil, 
that I may not cause pain. So God granted him what he requested. You see the most important part of that, right? I don't want just money. I don't want Mercedes. I don't want to, you know, I don't want that. I want you to expand my tent pegs. I want you to, my influence, my abilities. And yes, bless me. Yeah, if you want to give me twice as many cattle that I have right now, great. But also, more the whole second half, keep me from evil that I might not do any harm to anybody. That's the heart. David knows that he's got problems. Who doesn't? What man in that position with the crown on his head isn't going to have sin, isn't going to have problems, isn't going to have bad days, isn't going to talk to somebody in a more harsh way than they would have? It happens. It happens in your house. It happens with your friends. It happens at work, doesn't it? Sorry I said that to you. I know. And then you try to explain why. Well, this, 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 this happened, and it came out sideways, and you got, you got the wrong end. And I apologize for that. I didn't mean for it to come out that way. We've all got those problems. David admits it. You know I'm foolish, and my sins are not hidden from you. I know that. I just don't want those that are waiting for you, those that are believers, those that are like me, the remnant, those who love Jesus and worship like I do, please don't let them be hurt by me. It's a good prayer. A fair prayer. Nobody wants that. Nobody desires that intentionally. It may happen, but it doesn't, want, doesn't need to be intentional. Verse 7. Because for your sake I have borne reproach, shame has covered my face. Um, I have become a stranger to my brothers and an alien to my mother's children. Those are, those are them. That's Iliad. And the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. He's feeling it. We know that as Christians, we're called to suffer. Jesus told us that. If they hated me, they're going to hate you. That's if you're doing it right. You know, If you're doing it right, you're going to get as much pain and suffering as I had in this world. Oh, great. You know? But it, he, he didn't lie. He didn't conceal it from us. You'll be saved from your sins. You won't have to go to hell. You'll be on the right side of God the Father. You'll be closer to Him. You'll be in fellowship with Him. But believe me, that is a side that you cross over to, and that other side isn't happy that you did. So you should expect those things. Some of you are born-again believers. Some of you may not be, and I hope this morning that you turn to Jesus. I really do. But full disclosure, when you cross over, when you leave the world and all of its pleasures and all those things, the sin in your life and the things that are keeping you down and making you feel horrible inside, that brokenness, that separation from God, and you want to get rid of that ache and that emptiness, and you come over to Jesus to be fulfilled and forgiven and loved for the first time, they're not going to be happy about it. He may put a, a protection around you for a while, a little honeymoon time, some time to grow and to read his word and to kind of let it all soak in and settle into your life. But you have joined a different team now. You have been on the side of God now for the first time. You're no longer an enemy of God. You're a friend of God. And with that comes a lot of stuff, a lot of adversity, a lot of people that want you back over here, a lot of people that don't understand, expect to be misunderstood. David is feeling that. They're upset with me because zeal for your house has eaten me up. It's because of zeal. Now, this is a prophecy. When Jesus flipped the tables, you remember the story? 
And if you don't, well, he did. Hosanna, Hosanna. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. You know, so excited that, you know, he's there. And instead of going to the palace, he goes into the temple of God. Not a political revolution, but a religious one. And he goes in and he sees the money changers again. They've taken up their place again in the, in the house of God and he's flipping tables. Boy, he's angry. Angry Jesus, you know. I'm angry because you've taken up the place where the Gentiles are supposed to be able to come and pray to me. And you thought so little of them that you went ahead and took up their space so that you could increase your pocket, you know, make your wallet a little fatter. So get it out. You know, they began to flip these tables over and they said, oh, we remember the zeal, zeal. And they remember this prophecy right here. Zeal's good. Zeal without knowledge is bad. And we usually focus on that most of the time, but zeal with knowledge is excellent. So I'm all for zeal. Zeal's not the problem. Knowledge is the problem. So know your Bible and be super zealous for Jesus Christ in this world. You can't be overzealous for Jesus. You can't. With knowledge. David has a zeal for God, and that is why people are upset with him. It's foolishness to them. He looks like a fool. Why are you so into this? I mean, my goodness, you're saved. We get it. Got it. Now keep it to yourself. How can I? I was destined for hell, and now I'm not. How do I not tell everybody else in the world that there is a way to be rescued from your certain death? It'd be foolish for me not to talk about Jesus with everybody around me and to bring them to him. Jesus' brothers in John chapter 7 did not believe in Jesus. (laughs) A little too close to him, I guess. You know, Here's what they said. After these things in John chapter 7, Jesus walked in Galilee, and he did not want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. Now, the Jews' feast of the tabernacles was at hand. His brothers therefore said to him, depart from here and go to Judea, that your disciples, now this is all tongue-in-cheek, this is all sarcastic, please understand that, that your disciples, because they're not one of them, also may see the works that you are doing, for no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for even his brothers did not believe in him. I don't know. Nobody in my family understands my faith. Of course they don't. They're not saved. Well, they say they're Christians. Everybody says they're a Christian. Just ask them. You know Jesus? Yeah, I know Jesus. Are you saved? Are you going to heaven? Yeah, I go to church. Well, that's not really the definition. At that conference, it's a really good question you can ask them if you're not sure where they stand. Say, if I was an unbeliever, how would you tell me to get saved? See what they say. Can they answer that question? Well, hmm, hmm. Have you ever led anybody to the Lord? Have you ever talked about Jesus with anybody? Well, no. Doesn't make sense. That doesn't line up. Were you saved from your sins? Are you absolutely born again? Are you absolutely flabbergasted that you're actually, that's a word, that you're actually going to heaven because of what Christ did on the cross? No. Why would you not be shouting it from the mountaintops? Because uh, they might think, they might think what? That you're a child of God, that you're a son or daughter of the Most High? That you've got the answer, that you've got the good news, that you have the gospel? They might think that, you mean? 
His brothers are like, why are you doing all these things in secret? Well, first of all, it's not time yet, but Jesus is probably tired of explaining that to them. They just want to see fireworks. Hey, go down to the feast and tell them everything you told us. See what happens. That's kind of what brothers do, right? Unbelievers. David's brothers are no different. They didn't believe in him until Goliath dropped, right? Until Goliath hit the ground. James is one of Jesus' brothers, the writer of James. James figures it out. James sees his brother die on the cross, not there, not saved, not part of the disciples. Sees his brother rise up from the dead. Different story now. It's a different story. They may make fun of you now. They may not understand now. The people in your life may come against you right now, but what they see you have victory, not just a name or a cross around your neck, but actual victory in your life over sin and freedom and joy in your life. Say, what is this? They begin to get curious about this. It whets their appetite. It becomes salt and light to them. You do. You become salt and light to them in their lives. And like, I... And when they're ready, and when that time comes, and when the darkness is too dark for them to put up with any more, they may come to you and say, I need what you have. I need that. And we need to be ready to give a reason for the hope which lies within us. That's the opportunity. Verse 10. Because zeal for your house, or no, I'm sorry, when I wept and chastened my soul with fasting, that became my reproach. I also made sackcloth my garment. I became a byword to them. Those who sit in the gate speak against me, and I am the song of drunkards. They make up songs about David, the drunks, you know. I've heard those songs. Some of the songs that I hear and on secular radio and all, and they're kind of catchy, and I get it. But then I listen to the words. And they're making fun of Christians. There's one song that I would, I, 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 heaven is overrated. What? I can't listen to that song. Heaven is overrated? No, it's not. They're making fun of, you know. What we have here on earth is way better than heaven's overrated. Uh-uh. And you start listening to those songs that you just so snap along with. You probably don't snap anymore. We don't do that. We sing along with, you know. Listen to the words. Can a Christian sing those songs? Can a Christian sing those words out? Should they? Should I be snapping my fingers? Should I be going to those concerts? Should I be participating in all this garbage, you know? Back in the 60s, they had a bunch of great musicians back then. I say tongue-in-cheek. Probably very talented, for sure. But one of the jokes, and I can't remember the name of the song. It'll come to me here in a minute. Um, Oh, who wrote it? And and some of you will know who it is. Oh, my sweet Lord. You know, sweet, sweet Lord. George Harrison. Yeah, George Harrison. He's part of the Beatles, wasn't he? What a bunch of goofs. Anyway. Halfway... His whole point of writing the song was, if I can get him to start talking about sweet Lord, sweet Lord, because this is during the Jesus movement when hippies were getting saved, which is the birth of Calvary Chapel, by the way, when we exploded where we came from. 
He says, watch me get these Christian kids to start singing this and move them right into Krishna. And halfway through the song, he switches to my sweet Krishna. And they did. Be careful. Careful little ears what you hear. Be careful little eyes what you see. You know, Be careful little hands what you do. Be careful little feet where you go. Silly song for kids, right? Mm-hmm. Vital song for every saint. So important. They reproach me because I've chastened myself with fasting. They think that's funny. They're making fun of me. They're writing songs about me, making fun of me because I'm in sackcloth and because I'm repenting towards God. That's offensive to the unrepentant. Your repentance is offensive to the unrepentant because it makes them feel like they should be where you are. And they know they don't want to go there. They're not ready to give up their sin. And so the only thing they can do is make fun of the one who is. That's all they can do. In James chapter 4, verses 8 through 10, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he'll lift you up. That has to happen first so that he can build you up. He can't lift you up in that place of pride, in that place of sin with no repentance. You've got to break that in your life. Confess it. Bring it to God. Be sorrowful over it. Don't laugh about your sin. Don't joke about your sin. That's all he's talking about. He's not saying Christians need to walk around like this their whole life. We're a person. No. We're the most joyous people in the world because we've been saved. But we do have to go there first. We have to give that sin up first so that he can build us up. And so James calls him on it. We're laughing about your sin. It's not funny. It's what caused Jesus to die on the cross. And that was the only thing that ever happened in the world that was sin. He'd still have to go to the cross for that one thing. It's that big of a deal. That's all he's saying. And so David says, they they make fun of me. Verse 11, I also uh, made sackcloth my garment. I became a byword to them. And those who sit at the gate speak against me. And uh, I am the song of the drunkards. But as for me, my prayer is to you. Lord, that's capital Y. O Lord, in the acceptable time, O God, in the multitude of your mercy, hear me in the truth of your salvation. Deliver me out of the mire. Let me not sink. Let me be delivered from those who hate me and out of the deep waters. Let not the flood waters overflow me, nor let the deep swallow me up. Let not the pit shut its mouth on me. He's just going back to his first few verses. I feel like this. Because this is all happening. And he comes back to it and says, I need you to deliver me from this. I feel like I'm drowning. It happens. Sometimes we feel overwhelmed by the persecution. Overwhelmed by the loneliness that may come from walking with Jesus. Overwhelmed by it. It's like, I am in the mire. I just feel like I... It's like everything's dark. Like there's no bright spot in my life. David would come to the conclusion here. That's what he's getting at. There's nothing... I need you. Now, that's the bright spot. That's reaching up. In Luke chapter 23, verses 42 through 43, then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. You talk about someone who is at the end, the thief on the cross, who was previously making fun of him with the other thief on the other side. You know, 
But as it got closer and closer to them all dying, this one repented. This one didn't. This one says, remember me. I'm in the pit. I'm in the darkest place. I have nowhere to go but to you. Please remember me in your kingdom. And Jesus, in the middle of his own death and crucifixion, looks over and says, you'll be there. Ministers, serves. That's amazing. That's incredible. I have a problem with Joyce Meyer. I didn't mean to bring that out of nowhere, but I've got a problem with Joyce Meyer. She actually said at one point that Jesus became sin. Well, the Bible says that, but was no longer the son of God at that point. That's not true. The cross demonstrates that. Yes, sin was paid for at the cross. Yes, he was taking on the wrath and all the sin of mankind and the entire world was placed upon him, of course. But in the middle of this, he is the son of God ministering to the person next to him. Scripture proves it. He never got rid of being the son of God. He was always the son of God. He's ministering on the cross to those who need him. What an amazing picture. What a convicting picture for me. I'll minister when I'm stronger, God. You know, just not today. He's like, I really don't understand why you're having a problem today. Can I see your hands and your feet right now? I've got calluses, you know. (laughs) Not that he expects us to be able to do what he did. But I think I'm pretty quick to complain is all I'm saying. Pretty quick to excuse my inability to give my best to someone who needs it. I got my own problems. I got things I'm working out too. (laughs) And yet Jesus on the cross ministers to the thief next to him. Amazing. Amazing. (laughs) Verse 16. Hear me, O Lord, for your loving kindness is good. Now here's the bright. He, he He already feel it. Hear me, O Lord, for your loving kindness is good. Turn to me according to your, the multitude of your tender mercies, and do not hide your face from your servant, for I am in trouble. Hear me speedily. Draw near to my soul and redeem it. Deliver me because of my, because of my enemies. I need help. I need, I need it quickly. You know, um, I need your deliverance. I, there isn't anybody that can do it. In fact, you changing their minds and causing them to like me isn't even what I need. I just wish I wasn't such a target. I wish I could blend in a little bit more. I wish everybody would just kind of understand my position. Let me be me and let you be you. And that's not what I was asking for. I need your deliverance, oh God. I need your deliverance. I'm looking for God's help. 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. A certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets cried out to Elisha, saying, Your servant, my husband, is dead. And you know that your servant feared the Lord. And the creditor is coming to take my two sons to be his slaves. So Elisha said to her, what shall I do for you? Tell me, what do you have in your house? And she said, your maidservant has nothing in the house but a jar of oil. He said, go borrow vessels from everywhere, from all your neighbors, empty vessels. Do not gather just a few. 
And when you have come in, you shall shut the door behind you and your sons, then pour it, that jar that you have, into all those vessels and set aside the full ones. We're going to do a five loaves and two fish, Old Testament style. Does it make sense? It just doesn't stop. It just keeps filling and filling and filling until she comes to the end of the vessels. And it does. It dries up. That's it. The jar is empty by the time it's all been. What a beautiful picture of God's provision. Didn't make that one jar worth a billion dollars. It's funny how he did it, you know. Go try to sell that. I got a guy out there that'll give you a billion dollars for that jar. You'll be set for life. No, I want your faith. I want you to participate. I want you to go gather as many jars. I guarantee you at the end when that dries out, she'd been like, I didn't even go to Bob's house. Why didn't I go to Bob's house to get more jars, you know? I stopped. So it came to pass when the vessels were full that she said to her son, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there is not another vessel. So the oil ceased. Now, it goes on from there to say, go sell those jars. You and your sons live off the rest. And you'll be set. You'll be taken care of. Amazing. God's provision comes in all sorts of different ways. But God's provision is far better than me trying to figure my way out of things. She had come to the end. And unfortunately, that's usually where we reach out to God. We do our best. We do our best. I think it's kind of built into us, maybe as Midwesterners or whatever, or just human beings. I don't mean to pick on the East or West Coast. They got bigger problems, but we want to do what we can do. I don't want to ask until I have to ask, you know? And so she waits and waits and waits, but then it's time for God to deliver her and That's usually when people come to know Jesus Christ. They do as much as they can to manage their sin or the outcome of their sin in their life. Then I can do this now and I can I can make up for that and I can I can I can really do better here. And they and they go and go until they're finally at the end. I I I don't know what else to do. I am stuck. And then they begin to cry out to Jesus. If you're there this morning, it's a great time to cry out to Jesus. He wants to help you. Verse 19. You know my reproach, my shame, and my dishonor. My adversaries are all before you. You see it. Reproach has broken my heart, and I am full of heaviness. I looked for someone to take pity, but there was none. And for a comforter, but I found none. They also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. That's a prophecy about Jesus as well. On the cross in Matthew 27, 46 through 49, in about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood there when they heard that said, this man is calling for Elijah. Was he? No. Even on the cross, he's misunderstood. I think he said Elijah. No. He's quoting Psalm 22. You missed it again. So they get excited. Immediately, one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. The rest said, let him alone. Let's see if Elijah will come and save him. They've completely misunderstood everything. Still, even on the cross. Imagine his mouth is dry. 
I get that up here sometimes. You talk and talk and talk or whatever, but he's going through something obviously much more physical in the sense that now he's completely dehydrated. His tongue, his lips, everything's sticking together, and he's trying to cry out to God. And of course, it's a little mumbly, maybe not enunciated well. Not a lot of lubricant going on there. And so he cries out in a mumbly voice, and I think he's talking about Elijah. Give him some wine so we can hear him is the idea. We don't care about his life. We just want to hear what he's saying. Nobody's getting him off the cross. They just want to make it last a little longer for him so that they can see, you know, See him do a trick. Maybe he'll do one final trick for us. Completely misunderstood still. David says, they've given me gall for my food and for my thirst. They gave me vinegar. Those are the people that I was looking for help from. Those who I thought may have some tenderness for me, a little bit of mercy or some kind of consolation. And No, all they want to do is see what will happen to me. Verse 22, let their table become a snare before them and their well-being a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and make their loins shake continually. Pour out your indignation upon them and let your wrathful anger take a hold of them. Let their dwelling places be desolate. Let no one live in their tents for they persecute the ones you have struck and and talk of the grief of those you have wounded. Add iniquity to their iniquity, and let them not come into your righteousness. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living and not be written with the righteous. Did he lose his temper? Did he go too far? Is he not praying for them anymore? Does he, you know, has he given up? I don't think so. I think what he's upset with is there are just some people that just need to brought to the end of themselves, to be honest with you. Um, it's not that he wants to be avenged, you know? That's what it sounds like a little bit. Avenge me, O oh God, as I die here on my bed. Make sure they all feel the same thing I'm feeling. Not really. He wants protection. If they're not going to repent, then keep them from me. Let the things that they're putting on me, let that fall upon themselves kind of thing. When he wants iniquity to be added to them, and come to righteousness, let them be blotted out of the book of the living. What's he talking about there? What book of the living, you know? What's the Lamb's book of life? In Revelation 3, 5, to one of the churches that Jesus writes to, he says, he who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments and will not be, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. If you have not received this white garment in the sense that you've come to Jesus Christ and confessed your sins to him and received that forgiveness of sins, your name is not in the Lamb's book of life. You're in trouble. But those who overcome, those who come to Jesus, those who accept him as their Lord and Savior, accept the way of salvation, they have that. And their names are written in the book of life. That's what he's talking about here. Now, blotting out is a whole other subject. You mean they were written and now they're not? I don't want to build a theological anything on that, except that if I read something like that, boy, I want to make sure I'm just walking with the Lord. The Word of God says over and over again in the New Testament, abide, abide. That means stay, stay close, stay near, stay attached to Jesus Christ. Once saved, always saved. I would never promise anybody that. 
He talks about cutting off all the time. He talks about those who remove themselves from the Lord all the time in the scriptures. Maybe you are. I don't know. Scripture kind of goes all around that subject. But the one thing it does tell us to do is to abide. And so I guess you can risk it if you want. I would advise you not to. I would advise you as a believer in Jesus Christ to stay attached to the vine of Jesus Christ, to stay there, stay as close as possible, allow him to flow into your life so that you can bear fruit. I don't know that I'd want to die without him and risk that at one time when I was six, I got baptized. Stay close. On that same thought of blotting out in Revelation chapter 20, verses 12 through 14, the end of all time, the end of this creation before the new creation comes. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the deeds, and the dead, excuse me, were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. And death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. There is a moment where we stand before God and accountable for everything we've ever done. And either when we stand there, our names are written in the Lamb's book of life as forgiven, sins remembered no more, the righteousness of Christ, or you stand on your own and you try to defend yourself, which you won't be able to do, and your sins are judged and you pay the penalty for them. Verse 29. David continues on with who he is. But I am poor and sorrowful. Let your salvation, O God, set me up on set me up on high. I will praise the name of God with a song and I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This also shall please the Lord better than an ox or bull which has horns and hooves. The humble shall see this and be glad. And you who seek God, your heart shall live. For the Lord hears the poor and does not despise his prisoners. You may feel low, but God is hearing you. You may feel like the rest of the world is winning and they're making fun of you, the loser. But God hears your prayer. He doesn't see it that way. That's how the world sees it. That's not how he sees it. His economy and his judgments are different. His measuring rod is far different than the world's. And he sees you. We'll close with this. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build the cities of Judah, that they may dwell there and possess it. Also the descendants of his servants shall inherit it, and those who love his name shall dwell in it. There's hope. David ends this song that begins with, I don't know if I can survive this mire. And he ends here as he cries out to God and receives from God encouragement it's all going to work out in the end, and I'm with you, and I'm glad that I am. 1 Thessalonians 5, 17 through 18. Pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is, the God, this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. It's the praising and the prayer that help David, that encourage him, that build him up. And we want to do that with you this morning before you go. If you don't need prayer, if you don't need anything from the Lord right now, and you've received everything, you're... You're welcome to, to go and have a wonderful Sunday, and I pray that you do. But if you need prayer before you go, we'd love to pray with you. If you've never made Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior, maybe you've tiptoed around it for a long time, 
but this morning you feel that tug on your heart. Like, I need to make a commitment to Jesus today. I need to give my life to him. I need to give my sins to him. I need to be forgiven for my sins. I can't work this out anymore. I'm at the end of myself. I encourage you to come up and receive prayer. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to help you receive Christ. We don't have anything to do with it. Don't get me wrong. But we can lead you into prayer and help you. If this is your first conversation with him, if this is the time. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for David's heart to lay out his difficulties so open for everybody to see, so transparent. He was truly a man after your own heart, and Lord, we can identify with everything he said as we live the same kind of lives. So I pray for the saints that know you, love you, have walked with you, but are being persecuted and brought low by the world. I pray that you build them up and encourage them, God. I pray that they'd see your face. For those that don't know you this morning but feel that tug, Lord, I pray that they would answer the call, that they would take that step towards you. They would receive you as their Lord and Savior, be forgiven of their sins, and have assurance of everlasting life with you because of what your son Jesus did on the cross for them. Bless these folks as they go today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.